Hey everyone, and welcome back to It's a Paradox. It's Aliza here, your host for today's episode. I'd like to welcome Anwal Daliwal and Bilal Kader on this week's episode. Anwal has been a member of Team 1325 and is the team's design lead and primary driver. Outside of FIRST, Anwal has started clubs in school to promote STEAM-based education, as well as plays and coaches hockey. He hopes to further his education with a degree in mechatronics after high school. Bilal, on the other hand, has been a member of Team 1325 for nine years. During that time, he has served many various roles, such as head of robot design, head of strategy, as well as drive coach. Outside of FIRST, Bilal is a software engineer at Sun Life Financial and has a computer science degree from the University of Toronto. Today, Bilal and Animal are going to be discussing the role of the design team when building each season's competition robot and the process they go through each year. Thanks for the intro. Hey everyone, welcome to the 1325 Design Workshop. So the first thing we'll be talking about is season goal setting. Yeah, season goal setting, um, super important. Uh, often really overlooked. I don't know. A lot of a lot of teams tell me that they don't even do this. So, uh, at least on 1325, definitely one of the most important parts of our season. Yeah, and your season goals can be anything towards winning a championship, or uh, building a cool robot, something that's innovative. Yeah, um, for sure. Like, I think every team season goal should be really heavily catered to the team itself. Like, for example, a 1325's season goals probably wouldn't really make sense for any other team. Um, It's really dependent on the kind of team we are. Um, Yeah, Emil, do you remember one of our season goals from last year? Yeah, so one of our season goals from last year was to win a district event. And we were actually fortunate enough to compete because I know most teams didn't get to compete last year because of COVID-19. but yeah, and we were able to accomplish those that goal, and it was great. But there's some goals that we weren't able to accomplish because of COVID. So like, um, we wanted to possibly win DCMP, the Trisha Championship, but we weren't able to compete at that. Yeah, um, yeah. Some other examples of like our season goals. I remember back in like 2019, we wanted to win two district events. We wanted to win district championship chairmans. Um, we want to be chairman's finalists and at championship, and we tried to win a championship. Um, but yeah, this is a really good example of like our goals not including robot-specific stuff, like here. Um, but I guess that's more for someone else's podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah. it's totally okay if you, at the end of the day, you don't achieve your season goals because I know, like in 2019, our our goal was to win two district events, but we we didn't achieve that. So. Um, as long as you're making progress towards your goals and at the end of the day, your team is satisfied with that progress that you made toward the goal, it's a successful season. Yeah, totally. Like a, a big component of season goals is it gives you a way of measuring yourself throughout the season. So like, for example, in 1325, we can measure whether or not our robot is competing at the level we'd like it to by comparing it to our season goals. Um, but season goals, at least here on 1325, they're very performance driven. Um, but a season goal could totally not be um, performance-driven depending on the team. Like an example of that could be um, you want to have the most student involvement, the most number of students um, working on a machine, and that's a totally valid, totally fine um, season goal to have. Yeah, and sort of building off of season goals, 
there's also robot goals, which are a totally different um, kind of category of goals that your team can set. And I know that um, 1325 usually sets their robot goals on the first day of kickoff. And that allows us to cater our design process towards those goals instead of kind of it being a mess for the design yeah. season. So yeah, this yeah. is totally where season goals start to, to really show their merit. Because um, your robot goals are kind of, what does this robot really have to do in order for me to achieve my season goals? So on 1325, for example, when we're looking at trying to win a championship, um, it's really important. Our robot design goals are like, what does this machine have to do in order for us to achieve that goal of winning a championship? Um, and having that season goal makes it much easier for us to decide what our machine needs to do. Um, yeah. And that's why I think it's so important. Yeah, and an uh, example of this could be our, with our 2021 season. So our season goal was to win a district event. So our robot goals were that we wanted to be able to get um, all, our, all the RPs available during a match. And so that led towards more goals where we need to be able to um, climb, we need to be able to shoot, we need to be able to spin the control panel. So once you set your season goals, you can use that to build off of basically how the course of your season is going to go because everything is dependent on those season goals and that's why they're so important. Yeah, and bringing this back to kind of the example where I mentioned uh, a goal of having the most number of students working on a robot, um, this, this will also reflect in your robot goals, right? In order to maximize the number of students which build a machine, um, you're probably going to want to maximize the number of systems that are on it. And this, once again, helps you create those robot goals and what that machine needs to do during your season. Um, yeah, really, really intertwined kind of two concepts, but super important and often very overlooked. Um, yeah. So yeah. just to highlight a few key things before we move on to the next topic is that season goal setting is really important, but it's not the same thing as robot goal setting. And season goals can set the course for your entire season and they're really important yeah so one yeah. thing to talk about this i guess we're finally getting into the design part of, of this podcast um but yeah robot once you get your robot goals that's when you can start to really design systems right so for example if one of your robot goals i'm going to use the example of 2018 so power up um so like one of our one of our robot goals was we wanted to pick up the cube um, in a predictable way very, very quickly. Um, that was the goal for the robot. The goal for this intake was in order to do that. Um, and this was now gonna start to influence what we're gonna prototype and what we were going to um, want to design. Um, we usually call these need, wants, and wishes. Um, Emma, you wanna talk a little bit about needs, wants, and wishes? Yeah, so a needs, needs wants, and wishes are typically what we make for first the entire robot what we need the robot to do, what we want the robot to do, and what we wish it could do. But then we also break it down even further and do it for each subsystem so that we know what we have to cater our, our design towards. So for example, um, this year we needed a robot to climb. And then after um, diving deeper into the needs of the climber, we needed the climber to um, be able to climb in the middle of the bar. So we needed some way for the climber to fit near at the exact middle or near the middle of the, the climbing hanger in 2020. Yeah, 
Um, to kind of elaborate a little bit more on needs, wants, and wishes. So like a need should be thought of as what does the system have to do in order for you to achieve your season goals or your robot goals? Um, so for example, if in the case of a climber, what's the bare minimum that the system has to do in order for you to achieve that? Um, want is actually really close to a need on 1325. So for the most part, we treat our want and our need as the same thing, um, but they are slightly different. So our want is like, what would we like the system to do? It's not the number one priority, but it's very, very close to it. So an example of our want was um, our client for a climber could be, we need it to climb in under a second or we need it to climb in under two seconds. You know, This is very intertwined with the first one. And then the wish is usually more of a fantasy. It's like in a perfect world, what would you like the system to do? And on 1325, this is usually a, at some point in the, in the season, we would like this system to do this. So for a climber, for example, it's gonna be um, be able to self-center on the bar or something like that. Yeah, I was just gonna mention how in 2020, our biggest want or wish for the climber was to be able to center. And we actually weren't able to achieve that. But once again, that's okay because that was your wish and not yeah. your want. And yeah. I know a lot of teams, um, when they're designing, they think of wishes as wants and then they get upset when they couldn't achieve their wishes too. So yeah. if you can organize and prioritize what your design needs to do, you could be a lot more productive and overall end up with better designs because you're spending more time on um, functionalities that you need rather than you wish you had. Yeah, totally. Um, for wishes, absolutely. When you're designing the system, you want to think a little bit about it. That's totally fine. Um, but I think we'll probably get into this a little bit more, but first kind of has a limit on how much stuff a machine can do um, in the weight limit, right? Um, so no robot will ever be able to do everything. Um, so always you will have to make compromises. And by creating a system such as need, wants, and wishes, you're prioritizing what has to have, what has to be on this machine. Um, and then what over time you can add or um, stuff that just isn't feasible anymore. Um, so really, really good way um, to kind of influence how systems prototyped and, and made. Um, and yeah, 1325, we usually do this on the second day of kickoff, right? Yeah. And our needs, wants, and wishes are usually come after reading the game manual. And I know a lot of teams overlook reading the game manual, but mm -hmm. I think that everyone should know the game manual inside out before even thinking about any type of robot designs and what your robot should do. Because yeah. reading the manual can help you identify chokehold strategies. And basically you might think of a design, but it might be illegal to the game and you won't know it if you didn't read the manual. So that yeah. can lead to some disastrous <laughs> designs. Oh boy, I hate reading the manual. I think everyone on 1325 knows this. Like I absolutely despise it because it's so long and it's like, it's like worded as if like a lawyer was wording it, you know? It's like just to stop you from doing things. Um, but yeah, totally agree with you. <laughs> absolutely read the manual. Um, probably read it multiple times. Um, and I guess the biggest part is for whatever reason, first has decided to make games exponentially more difficult um like there's like a thousand ways to score now um so yeah make sure you understand the game i know at least myself um when a new game comes out it usually takes three or four watches of the the the, the video to even understand kind of what's really happening um and how to play it 
So I think that's another really important part is before you even start thinking about these needs, wants, and wishes, or even robot goals, um, make sure you thoroughly understand how the game is played. And usually that takes about a day to fully, fully grasp. Um, yeah, sorry for the shade first game design yeah. committee. <laughs> I remember my first year in grade nine when I watched my first reveal video. Uh, I think that was Deep Space. Oh, and the best I, one to watch. <laughs> I was really confused with what was going on because of the whole sandstorm thing. And like, I really didn't understand what was happening with the sandstorm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't I mean, really this... get how the scoring worked either. <laughs> like I, I thought in the null hatch panels, I didn't understand mm -hmm. that for a really long time. Like I think uh, like a few days until I really <laughs> sat down and yeah. read the manual. I know for sure, like multiple, 1325, I think probably for a couple of days, usually we, on almost every single year, we have this idea of something that we think we can do and it turns out we can't. Um, honestly though, like, I know this is starting it to turn into a bit of a tangent, but like, what was wrong with an open field and like one goal, you know? Like those were, those were fun. You had, you had, you know, you just fun strategies, fun robots that you could make out of it. Why do we need to have all of these structures? <laughs> yeah, I remember like, um, I think the only year that I've had like a semi-open field was 2020 because Deep Space was really crowded. But yeah. I remember watching like even Steamworks, like that was a pretty open field. I remember. Yeah, I love how you said 2020 open field, yet you still managed to beach the robot. Um, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> That's not my fault. That was okay. that was whoever designed the drivetrain. Oh, okay. <laughs> that that was me too. All right, um, we should probably get back on track. Um, yeah, I guess the next, because we're on robot robot goal, uh, robot design goals and needs wants and wishes, I guess the next kind of logical part is prototyping, right? Yeah, so 1325, after establishing our needs, wants, and wishes, goes uh, to our shop and starts prototyping our subsystems. So we would make an intake prototype with an old drivetrain that's laying around from, a, from an old robot and if possible, we would like to drive it around. But I know some years that wasn't possible. So yeah. Yeah, one, one awesome thing with um, intakes, a kind of a hack that we started using a couple of years ago, um, is if you have like an old cart lying around, just some wheels on it, it works awesome as a makeshift drivetrain. Um, so like usually we have like a wood tiny little flat cart. Um, we'll usually just straight drill um, intake prototypes into it. And then that way it has the maneuverability to drive around. Um, really, really important and really awesome for, for testing intakes. Um, but before I get more into those intakes, um, a key thing with um, prototyping especially is I think sometimes it can get lost what you're trying to do with the prototype. Um, so with prototypes, you know, there's the general proof of concept, which is like, can a spinning roller pick up a ball? Um, and that's totally fine if you need to test that. And oftentimes there's game elements where you do. Um, but I guess the more important part of prototyping is you should really try and understand the intricacies of a system um, when you're designing it. Because your prototype really should translate to almost directly into your final design. Um, so an example of this could be like, if you're picking up a box, um, make sure that your prototype is legal. <laughs> um, make sure that it's the correct sizes. Um, make sure the wheels that you're using on your prototype are the wheels that you would like to use in your final design. Um, that way, when if you're, once your prototype is working and you're very happy with your prototype, you can almost ensure that your final design will work just as well and probably, hopefully, um, a little bit better. Yeah, and 
just to kind of add on to you need to have goals and that you need to also have goals for prototyping because I know it's really easy to get lost in prototyping. So you might uh, make an intake prototype and all of a sudden uh, it's week two or even like week three sometimes and you have a really nice intake prototype and it works really well, but it's week three and you're running out of time to actually yeah. design your real robot. For sure. Um, always designing prototypes should, like, prototyping into week three is totally fine as long as you've already started your final design, right? Like, the design can evolve with the prototype um, over time, and that that's also um, totally cool. Um, yeah, prototypes are, prototypes are also a really, <laughs> are a way to make your life way easier later on. Because um, if you have a really good prototype, which is, once again, I'm going to say it, legal, so meaning it's the correct sizes, you're using the same wheels that you're going to be using um, on your final machine, um, once you have that down, when you translate it directly into your final design, you don't really need to worry about, oh, will this work? Um, because, you know, the prototype worked, right? Um, so your prototypes really should be having almost the same functionality as what you want your final design to do. And that's kind of where your, as Emil mentioned, your robot goals come back into it, right? So your prototype really should be um, achieving your like need and your want for that system. Yeah, and just to add on to prototypes, like they can be really simple too. Like I know on 1325, sometimes like most of our prototypes are just made out of plywood and we don't even use like motors to run it most of the time. It's just yeah. someone with a drill, running a drill on a hex shaft. Yeah. And um, they usually yeah. work out great. Yeah, totally. We build all of our stuff out of wood for prototypes. Um, but once again, I'm going to say it a third time because of how important I think it is. We make sure they're legal. We make sure they fit. Um, so for example, they're they're the size of what our robot can be. Um, and yeah, all, all, of our, all of our prototypes, although yeah, we probably initially start with drills and stuff. But the key thing is, even if we are running them on drills, um, when we translate it to our actual final design, we actually make sure we know um, how fast that drill was spinning um, when the prototype was at its optimal. Um, we take key measurements, like, um, for example, with an intake, how far is it sticking out inside of the robot? If there's any specific geometry, um, we take into account that. So, for example, if your intake has some pivot points, um, we make sure to make translate those pivot points to be in the exact same position on the final design as they were on the prototype. Um, and other key things, like if there's a spring um, to provide some compliance on a system, we make sure to understand and know where that spring is, what its location is like, and directly translate that over. Um, I like to say like a lot of the times if you take a picture of one of 1325's prototypes and put it next to the CAD model for it, um, they will almost look exactly the same in terms of where things are. So all of the proportions will be the same. Um, yeah. Um, Emil, do you want to talk a little bit about copy the best, invent the rest? Yeah, so basically first games have a lot of overlap from old games. So I know that this year's 2020 balls were kind of similar to the 2016 balls, but just a different sizes. Um, so you could kind of base your intake off of um, some 2016 intakes. Now, um, what you can do with that is, is that you can go to the, the like good teams and copy what you can find about their intake. So like, let's say you can find what type of roller they used and like if it was over the bumper or if it was like inside of the robot. But then you also have to do some 
inventing so that's where the inventing comes in so like where would those rollers be placed because at the end of the day the game piece is a bit different so there are going to be adjustments but you could get like a main idea from someone else and use that to make your subsystem yeah um a really big thing and first and kind of like trends you start to see is um a lot of teams which are playing the games systems start to look really similar um and that's not because everyone's copying each other it's because a lot of the times first kind of has first almost has its own design language right um people design machines for specifically for first um so there's just some best practices kind of out there for example building a flywheel um all teams usually have a very similar geometry hood design um and gearbox design and this isn't you know coming out of taking a look at what other teams have done in previous years but the thing i want to stress the most and this is kind of where <laughs> Um, copy the best and that the rest kind of gets lost is you need to still make sure that you prototype what you're doing. Um, by copying another, something that another team did, awesome, you've done the proof of concept. You know that that spinning roller will pick up a ball. Um, but the, oftentimes with these designs, there's often an intricacy somewhere. So this can be whether where a slot is to provide some clearance for the game piece or um, an example of a gearbox location being in a very specific spot due to allowing a game piece to rotate. Um, and these are things that just by looking at photos or videos are really easy to miss. So if you go straight in a CAD and you make it, you now manufacture this. And then after that, when you're testing, you're like, oh, wait, the game piece is getting caught here. That's why they did that. Um, so I think a really, really important part, I can't stress this enough, is it's totally cool to look at something that another team has done. But at least on 1325, we always test it. So we will always if you come to our shop, you will find that wood prototype of that thing that 1114 made um, and us just making sure and making sure that we totally understand how this design works before you implement it on our own machine. Yeah, and just to end off on prototypes, um, at the end of the day, your prototype doesn't have to be perfect. Like it can have like a few small errors with it, but don't get too carried away with errors because then that could lead to another will this work scenario because you're trying something totally different than what the prototype was yeah. so yeah absolutely and kind of what we do after prototype um prototyping is catting so that kind of leads us to our next topic below do you want to talk about how 1325 uses catting yeah um so i would like to start by saying stuff that Bilal's about to say is going to be controversial so um to the general first community don't be mad at me um, so CAD stands for computer-aided design. There's plenty of softwares out there that you can use, but it's essentially just a way of 3D modeling using a computer um, to visualize what your machine will look like. I think CAD is an amazing tool. Um, on 1325, we would easily not be the team we are without it. Um, and I, a lot of top tier teams will probably say something similar. Um, but I'm going to start, I'll let Animal, I'll let you talk more about the CADing process because I haven't CADed in a very long time. Um, but one thing I will say is it's really easy to get lost in CAD. Um, so on 1325, for example, students are never learning CAD um, during the season. So the students who are designing subsystems on machines um, have gone through a full kind of CAD training session in off seasons and are fully familiar with how to use the tool. Um, I guess a big thing is for teams which aren't familiar with CAD, um, if you don't know it, you don't need to use it. Um, you can do a lot with a chalkboard, a whiteboard, or just some drawings in two dimensions. 
And often doing that, if you don't know CAD, will be much more effective use of your time than trying to CAD um, a, a, a part um, not knowing how to do that. Um, so yeah, for sure, CAD is an amazing tool. Um, however, it's not like you don't have to use CAD to be very successful in first. 2D drawings, uh, you know, a whiteboarding sketch um, totally work very, very well. Um, but yeah, Emma, I'll let you talk a little bit more about how 1325 uses CAD. Yeah, and just before I talk about how 1325 um, uses CAD, I just wanted to throw out some sort of CAD uh, resources out there. So personally, I learned how to CAD from the Symbotics uh, SolidWorks tutorials, um, and I think they're a great resource. And uh, 1325 actually uses SolidWorks to CAD, but there's a lot of free softwares out there like Onshape. I know a lot of teams are starting to switch to that, and I think it's a great CADing software too. So yeah. And I guess a big part of why 1325 probably uses SolidWorks is because we've always been using SolidWorks. It kind of turned into a legacy thing for us, right? Um, but also, I think it's important to mention, is SolidWorks still give out sponsorship to FRC teams? Yeah, SolidWorks still gives out um, sponsorships to FRC teams. You just have to apply online on SolidWorks.com. Cool, yeah, we can we can ask whoever is going to be putting up this um, podcast to throw something up on our like Twitter or Instagram. <laughs> Yeah, and so uh, I just wanted to mention, so design on 1325, or at least CAD, is totally, like, 100% student-led. Um, mentors will look over uh, CAD drawings to make sure that we're, like, on track and what we've done is sort of adequate to what we need to do, but the initial design is made by students. Yeah, if you um, as... <laughs> As a design mentor on 1325, I can verify that. Um, but I guess a, a really key part that 1325 does from a design point of view is um, all those students are always doing the CAD work and all the design work. Um, we check in with mentors quite frequently. Um, the reason is, is honestly to save students time. Um, we don't wanna to spend too long going down the wrong path. Um, so for example, if a student's making a part and we start to notice that, hey, this might be really difficult for us to manufacture, um, having that quick check-in um, to make sure that we're going down the right route uh, saves a lot of time later on. And honestly, it saves a lot of frustration as well. Yeah, and just to talk about sort of um, staying on track with CAD, I know uh, 1325 has sort of like a soft deadline for CAD on week two, but like there's a really hard deadline uh, for week three on CADing. So like we have to be done and our parts have to be sent out to our sponsors by week three. Yeah, and I mean, we I have examples. I remember back in 2018, um, 1325 had kind of a constraint issue with how we were gonna attach the carriage to our elevator. Um, and it was week three, uh, about half of our stuff had been sent out. And honestly, we just made the call. We were like, send everything out. We don't know how we're gonna attach our carriage to our elevator, um, but we'll figure it out. You know, it's not, it's a problem that we can solve, but by sitting in CAD and kind of staring at it, we're not really getting anywhere. So if we just send it out, start manufacturing the machine and then start to come up with a solution that way, um, it's probably easier for us. Um, so yeah, we've definitely had examples of where we've sent out all of our parts um, and not really had a solution to something. I guess it's important to note that 1325 sponsors are kind of a one-shot deal. Um, our sponsors allocate a little bit of time for us during build season and we get one shot to send them that zip file. 
Um, and once parts come back, that's it. Um, unfortunately, we can't send them anything else. Yeah, and sometimes CAD designs don't work out as you plan, plan them to do. So I know this year, um, when I designed the climber gearbox, it didn't plan, it didn't go as planned. And there was actually a lot of issues with it. But just um, after I sent them out, I saw the issues in CAD, but it was getting late. So I was like, you know what, let's just send out the parts and we'll figure it out in real life. But then when I was actually building the gearbox in real life, I figured out like, oh, I could solve this problem like this. Or yeah. um, like this spacer is the wrong size. That's why everything wasn't aligned and yeah. stuff like that. Totally, yeah. So I uh, it's really important to just know that, you know, your CAD model doesn't need to be perfect. It should be a pretty good idea of what the robot should be. Um, and for the most part, try and get it as accurate and as perfect as you can in CAD. Um, however, you don't need to really stress about um, any problems you may have, especially if it's a late, um, a late week. Um, one thing I want to talk about, ML, because we talked a little bit about our sponsors, is um, about how 1325's um, sponsors kind of work. And for the most part, 1325s does their best to make as much as we can in-house. The reason is, is um, a lot of our sponsors, although they're very graciously giving us um, time to uh, manufacture our stuff, um, the deadlines can be very um, fluid, uh, obviously, because um, if a paying customer comes in with a large order, our sponsors will justifiably push our stuff back. Um, I think back in 2017 in the off season, um, 1325 used to be a full sheet metal team, so we were almost 100% reliant on our sponsors. Um, but at the off-season of 2017, we made the decision to pull back some of the stuff that we were making or sending out to our sponsors, and instead um, started manufacturing it using box tubing in-house. And it was a very big game changer. Big game changer? Very big game changer, yeah. <laughs> um, it was a game changer for us in terms of being able to manufacture our robots and manufacture our robots much, much more efficiently and, and within a shorter time period. Yeah, and just to talk about box tube, I think box tube is a really great material for teams to invest in because oh. to make or prepare like a part of box tube, really all you need is some way to cut it. So it could be a bandsaw, like even like a hacksaw, if you yeah. really got desperate and you need like a drill press. Um, totally. You, you could, suffice with a drill, I'd recommend a drill press just to have straight yeah. holes. For sure. Um, yeah, it's no secret, 1325 manufactures about 70% of our robot um, on a chop saw, a drill press, um, and a bandsaw. Um, and it's totally, it's a very effective way for us to make, to, to make components. And it's really nice to make components in-house because you have control over the entire process. You're never kind of waiting, being like, when will, when will this come for us to um, start building the next part. Um, but yeah, one thing that I want to talk about really quickly is about printing one-to-one -one drawings. So one of the ways that 1325 is able to make so many parts in-house um, on these drill presses and bandsaws is we leverage a tool, or I guess not a tool, a component of SolidWorks. So SolidWorks will actually allow you to print a 2D drawing of any part um, with dimensions at a one-to-one -one scale. So all you need is CAD and a printer. Um, so 1325 will often take our um, take that one-to-one -one drawing and double-sided tape it to a piece of aluminum or wood or whatever um, material we're using, and then use that as the stencil um, to cut it and then put the holes in it. Uh, by doing this, by double-sided taping this piece of paper on top of the material, the part will come out um, completely accurate. The holes will be in the exact spot they were in CAD. Um, 
and it, it's phenomenal. Like 1325 has made, um, we've made bearing blocks using this system. So things that have extremely tight tolerances. Um, and yeah, all it really took was uh, a drill press, um, a, a punch, and a, a printer. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's a, enough about um, custom part design. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the off-the-shelf system that 1325 uses. Um, now the system that I'm about to use probably doesn't work for all teams, um, but 1325 honestly does their best to design as little as we can. Um, if a solution exists on McMaster Car or on Vex Pro um, that we can purchase, more often than not, we will, we will take a look at it and consider it. So for example, 1325 does not manufacture custom drive gearboxes. Um, we purchase them off the shelf um, because it's just one less thing that we need to create and these drive gearboxes have been tested um, and created by multiple other teams. So we know they'll be reliable. Um, we do this for a lot of stuff, 1325 in the past. Um, sometimes we'll use VersaPlanetaries. Sometimes we won't just because of packaging constraints. Um, but yeah, uh, for example, if we need a roller, 1325 is not making that roller in-house. We're just purchasing one from McMaster Carter somewhere else. Um, but yeah, another great off-the-shelf component is the kit of parts drivetrain. So, and I'll let you talk about that. Yeah, and just before I get into the kit of parts drivetrain, I wanted to mention like um, how useful off-the-shelf parts can be even in your CAD because when I was designing the um, 2020 season drivetrain, I was trying to get it done within week one and uh, instead of spending one or two days on making a gearbox, I was able to just download the step file of the two-cent ball shifter from the VEX website and put it in the drivetrain. So that probably saved me around one or two days of time that I could I then use to kind of perfect the drivetrain CAD in, in a week. For sure. Before I let you segue to the, the kit of parts, I just wanted to mention that, like for example, 1325, this off-the-shelf component system that we use um, is very dependent on our season goals, right? Um, so keep in mind that this system is not for every team. This system is very heavily catered to 1325's constraints. So our limited time in our shop, for example, um, and our goal to win a championship. So if your goals may differ, it actually may make more sense for you to make the gearbox in-house, um, to make a custom one if you'd like. So just keep that in mind. Uh, but yeah, ML, kit of parts. <laughs> yeah. No, finally, one more thing before we get into kit of parts <laughs> is uh, some off-the-shelf stuff can be expensive, and that can be a boundary for some teams. But trust me, it's a really good investment if you buy one one year, because below, I think we've never bought um, two simple shifters after 2018 or 2019. Yeah, 2018, we purchased three. Um, it was a lot of money. I remember that price tag. Um, but yeah, we've reused them. I think sometime, I think we may have bought one more as a spare. Um, but yeah, for sure. Those gearboxes have uh, gone many, many seasons. Yeah. And so just talking about now, we're finally getting into the kit of parts drivetrain. Um, so like what I was saying before, our goal is to design a drivetrain um, before week one. And I think that if the CAD resources that you have on your team can't design a like, full drivetrain within the end of week one, I suggest that it would be so much better to just use the kit of parts chassis and then you can use a step file of that for your full robot design. And it just saves a lot of time for 
um, for you to do other stuff. So like you could use that time to prototype uh, or design other subsystems. Absolutely. The Kinderparts drivetrain is an amazing drivetrain. I don't know why it gets knocked so much. Um, like 13.5, for example, would consider using it. For us, we use the custom sheet metal drivetrain because we can. And honestly, that's probably the most, the biggest reason. It helps us. It does help us in some aspects with mounting things. Um, so we can cater the drivetrain a little bit. Um, for example, if I'm an elevator or a shooter or something like that, we can assure that it'll interface really nicely. But I mean, even the kit of parts drivetrain is about, it's a sheet metal drivetrain too. So it's very, very similar to, to what we're custom making anyway. So I think it's a, it's a wonderful drivetrain. Yeah, and if you're having trouble assembling it, I'm pretty sure there's a symbolic tutorial on how to assemble a kit of parts drivetrain. And they went in pretty great detail um, on how to assemble one and have one and yeah. have a strong kit of parts drivetrain that you could yeah. use throughout the entire season. I always find it funny that like 1325, we don't have a driving robot till like week four. And some teams have a driving robot on like the first day. Um, so yeah, <laughs> just just something that I was found funny. Um, yeah. And a funny thing is uh, 2020, our climber actually didn't work until the day of competition. The first time I climbed <laughs> was at the practice field at nice. uh, competition. So I was actually learning the controls uh, in line for a match. That's that's some classic 1325 stuff. I don't think, have we ever had a year where we didn't do that? <laughs> Remember back in like 2018, the first time we ran our intake was the day before the competition. Hey, but one thing to note about both of those examples was um, they both worked and I like to, always attribute this to how well our prototypes were. Um, because yeah, for example, in 2018, our, our intake hadn't been proven until the day before competition. Um, however, the prototype had worked phenomenally on any kind of cube. Um, so yeah, the first time we chucked a cube into in, into that intake, it intook, intook, intaked, it intaked it fine. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Some uh, words are just confusing for both. <laughs> Honestly, English, dude, I'm a software engineer. Um, English isn't my strong suit. Um, but yeah, um, one thing I want to talk a little bit about is reliability versus performance. And once again, I'm going to put out the disclaimer that some of the stuff I'm about to say may be a little controversial. Um, so I'm sorry to the people who find it controversial. Um, <laughs> so one thing with first is you will always run into the dilemma of reliability versus performance. And this all comes down um, to the 120 pound weight limit. So ro FRC robots, especially when you're trying to compete for a championship, um, have to manipulate a lot of game components and score in many places. And this often requires having multiple subsystems in a very small compact space. Um, so what starts to happen is like, for example, on 1325, our elevators are built out of 1 wall tubing. Um, our intakes are made out of quarter inch plastic. Um, you really start to reach um, material limits. So not to say that, you know, the first time you power it up, your robot's gonna break, but in 1325, for example, almost every practice robot we have ever made has destroyed itself. So had like a catastrophic failure um, the week before championship. This means like a bend breaking on a piece of sheet metal or um, a fracture in plastic or something like that. Something that would usually be pretty um, if it happened in a competition, would set us back a couple of matches. Um, 
So whenever you're designing a robot, another thing to keep in mind, so like for 1325, for example, when we're going for a championship, we know this robot's gonna have to run a lot of matches. Um, we really need to start thinking about, okay, um, in order for our robot to run this long, we may need to make a sacrifice in performance here um, in order to make sure that our robot gets all the way to the end. Um, so yeah, I always, it's always such an interesting dilemma to think about. And I know I've had some, some, some friends who are mechanical engineers and you know, they come in, take a look at the robot and they're like, why did you make an elevator out of 1 16th wall tubing, you know? So um, it's always uh, something you got to think about when, when you're making design choices. Yeah, and another thing that kind of ties into reliability is modularity and how module your designs are. So yeah. um, you want to make sure that your designs are easily sort of replaceable. So like, let's say uh, your intake breaks, like it's totally shattered. There's no way you can repair it. How many bolts is that intake connected to? Is it connected to like 12 points on your robot and you can't access those 12 points because there's a climber on top of it. So you got to take the climber off and then your intake comes off and then you can put a new intake on and put your climber back on. Or can you just take out a few bolts, your, your entire intake comes out, you can repair it and you can put it back on with another yeah. few bolts. Absolutely. And this is another one of those things that's often very overlooked um, in robot design. And I'll be honest, 1325 probably overlooks it in some places once or twice a year. Um, and the biggest one, the one that I love to ask myself is, um, <laughs> take that gearbox out, I dare you. Um, so for example, when you're designing something and you know, you're putting in those bolts in the CAD model, one thing that's always really important to think about is if I ever need to loosen this bolt, can I fit an Allen key in here? Um, 1325 has failed that test multiple times. I remember back in 2018, our elevator gearbox literally could not come out of the robot without taking off the elevator because it had a shaft that spanned the whole drivetrain. Um, so serviceability, it's one of those things that seems really insignificant until you need to take a gearbox out and you're like, if I just put one hole in the drivetrain here, I was able to fit an Allen key. Um, so yeah, serviceability is super, super important, often overlooked. Um, but it's really important whenever you're designing something, always take a minute to think, if I need to loosen this bolt, if I need to take this gearbox out, um, how many, would I be able to fit the tool that I need in the space here? Yeah, and some sort of like obvious ones that I know like teams don't even think about because they're so obvious, but then they realize like, oh my God, we can't do this. So like, can you take your battery out easily and swap it between a match? Can you swap well, your bumpers in... I would say two minutes max mm -hmm. um, for swapping your bumpers because let's say you just came off a match and you were on the red alliance and now you're queuing again but you're on the blue alliance you can't go back to your pit and take like 10 minutes to change your bumpers because mm -hmm. they're so hard to reach and then you get back in queue and oh you missed your match uh oh yeah Coming, coming back to the circling back to the battery thing um, I think this is something that 1325 has definitely got a lot better at um, but yeah, we definitely, even still, still sometimes we have the issue of, can we get the ro the battery out of the robot and how, how difficult is it to do so? Um, there's been times where we've almost altogether forgot about it until someone was like, wait, we need to put a battery in this robot. Um, so yeah, always, always, always just remember it. Like if I need to, I need to take the battery out after every match, um, 
make sure uh, that you can get it in and out. And I know this sounds really obvious, um, but when you're designing and you're really focused on getting that intake perfect, it's a really, really easy thing to forget about. Um, yeah. So yeah, I just want to circle back to, to modularity for a second. Um, and I think this will kind of lead into our next part, which is um, modularity also gives you an added level um, to modify your design later on. So one kind of thing that I guess I got to put the disclaimer out for a third time about um, this might be controversial, but um, in FRC, I always like to think it is really difficult to make one subsystem do multiple things really well. Um, it's really, really hard for one system specifically to FRC to manipulate multiple components or score in multiple places effectively. Um, more often than not, um, you're gonna want multiple systems to do so. And I understand that there may be cases in terms of packaging where that can happen, um, but it's really, really difficult to, to have that one system do two things really, really well. So by designing something modular, it allows you to create specific subsystems which don't depend on each other. Um, by not depending on each other, it makes it much easier to change your design as the season goes on. It makes it much easier for you to thoroughly test your machine before you go to a competition. Um, it's always a really important thing to kind of keep in the back of your mind. Um, if you have multiple systems that depend on each other, um, say you wanna make your intake a little bit better, but your intake is also a shooter. Um, say your intake isn't working super well. Now you need to modify your intake. Well, unfortunately, now you're also modifying your shooter. Um, so suddenly you're in this kind of compromised situation of which system do I want to have that's better. Um, so in FRC, if it's possible, on, you can keep it under the weight limit and you can fit it within the height and width restrictions. Always, always, always try your best to have systems do one thing really, really well, rather than trying to combine them all together. Yeah, and a really easy way to do that is just kind of CAD them separately. So I know on 1325, we CAD each subsystem separately and they're for one game piece or for one scoring objective on the game. So that really allows us to have really modular design so we can, and modularity also ties into serviceability because if your design isn't module, you won't be able to service your robot as easier, as easy too. Because if you need to, like rip apart your shooter to repair your intake. It's not very module and that's going to take a lot of time and you might miss matches or even if it's really severe, you might get disqualified from the competition because your robot just can't compete anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And I guess this is going to start leading into the next part of modularity, which is um, iterative design. So we're going to kind of shift gears away from during build season and more to when you're now competing. So 1325 has done this, and I'm sure every team at some point has done this, where they've gotten the system wrong. Um, you know, the, it worked in the prototype. Um, it worked, it kind of works at competition, but you know, the system needs to be better and uh, you're not really sure where to go with it. So I think iterative design is something that 1325 does, does quite well, um, which is understanding what part of our machine isn't reaching its subsystem goal? What part of our robot isn't hitting its robot goals? Um, and this is why I stress so much about robot goals is it's a really good way of evaluating your robot um, in the season. So after your first competition, you can come back and you can say, okay, we have these goals written down. We knew exactly what our need, our want and our wish was. Um, let's start watching some match video from the competition we just went to 
and understand, is this system hitting our need, our want, and then maybe our wish, depending on where we're at? Um, and if the answer is no, um, it gives you a really good way to think, okay, what do we need to do to the system now to make it hit that need or that want? Um, and yeah, so how to, yeah, and modularity is a really big part of it because now if your intake isn't hitting your need, your want, or your wish, it's a completely separate system. So if you modify it, it's totally fine. It's just gonna level that system up to where you want it to be. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I can talk about some of our uh, experiences with iterations, yeah, uh, even in the 2020 season. So um, we made an intake first that had mechanum rollers and we wanted, it was kind of based on 971 in 2016, I think, mm -hmm. um, where they centered the ball uh, with mechanic wheels and they picked it up. Yeah, I remember um, that prototype. And actually, the prototype worked quite well. Yeah, the, the prototype was working fine. But then once we got the competition and we put it on the robot, uh, we realized that the balls would just kind of fall out of the robot mm -hmm. for some reason if we weren't mm -hmm. standing still. So... Uh, after we came back from Georgian, our first event, we decided that um, there was something fundamentally wrong with our subsystem. Our intake was dropping balls. And the whole point of an intake is to pick them up. So yeah. if it's doing the exact opposite, there's something fundamentally wrong. And yeah. we had to start over. Yeah. So, Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, one thing was, yeah, for that example there, it wasn't hitting the need, right? The need was for the ball to come to the robot. And it also probably wasn't hitting the wish, which the wish was probably intake sub sub one second. Um, so you mentioned something interesting about starting over. Um, and this is a decision that every 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 FRC team will probably have to make at some point, um, which is, okay, we have the system. Um, it worked in the prototype. It's not working out in competition. Um, it's not hitting our need or our wish. Um, so what do we do? Do we continue working on it? Do we keep tweaking the design of this um, or do we start over? So tweaking is usually the way to go. The reason is because you already have so much knowledge on that system. Um, you know that system almost inside and out, you know how it works, you know why it's working and you also probably know why it isn't working. So more often than not, the best way to go is usually to modify the system you already have on your machine. However, you'll sometimes end up in a case where this system isn't working at all. It has some kind of fundamental flaw in it um, from a more of a conceptual point of view. Or maybe even you tried to pick up a ball using uh, a grabber, for example, um, and everyone else is using wheels. And wheels are doing it just so much faster. Um, you always want to evaluate, OK, let me take a look at my robot goals. Let me look at my subsystem goals. And ask yourself, as a team, will this system ever be able to do that? Um, by this point, you have a lot of knowledge on the system, and you can accurately kind of make that decision. So in some cases, <laughs> something that, you know, happens on 1325 a lot, I've been guilty of it, I've probably done it the most, um, is that team is doing this. Why can't we do that? And this is a good question to ask. Um, oftentimes, if you design a modular robot and you have some time, um, if you see a better proof of concept, a better approach to doing something, by all means, totally go with it. But I'm just going to stress it again, always prototype it. So in 2017, 1325 had a fundamental flaw in our gear, in our gear mechanism. And 1325 
pulled the, pulled the system off, prototyped something new. So it was tested, um, we made sure it worked, and then we um, did our best to test the two systems against each other to understand, okay, we have a lot of knowledge on this system, very little knowledge on this system. Let's compare the two and see which one we want to go with. Um, so yeah, iterative design, it's a really, it's a difficult thing to get right. You will always at some point probably make some mistakes. Um, but yeah, really, really <laughs> the modularity especially makes it so much easier, easier on you later. Um, if you designed this integrated, very heavily put together um, robot, for example, had one arm that did everything. You kind of rule out the ability to continue improving your robot throughout the season. Yeah, and just sort of building on to um, do you want to rebuild? You also have to look at do you have the resources to rebuild? Um, because <laughs> a lot of teams, they rely on sponsors, right? But um, so an example for 1325, uh, we wanted to rebuild our intake in 2020. We know that we can't go back to our sponsors. So can we make a new intake side plate in-house? That was the main question that was asked. And we decided, yes, we can. We're going to try on a bandsaw. And we were able to do it with the, once again, the one-to-one -one, uh, drawing uh, printing and paste and double-sided taping it onto um, some Lexan. And yeah. it totally worked out. Yeah. Um... Yeah, totally. And I mean, for the most part, I think, and while we kind of covered all the really important stuff when it comes to designing a FRC machine, um, I guess this, this podcast was less engineering specific and more process specific. Um, but I think that's important. Um, like, for example, 1325, we're at kind of at a point now where our process is iterative. <laughs> we kind of have a general recipe for, for designing machines from how we set our goals to how we prototype our robot to how we design them. Um, and we just keep tweaking that process every single year to get better and better. Um, so if you take a look at our 2018 elevator, and then you take a look at our 2019 elevator, and you look at our 2020 climber elevator, you'll notice a lot of them are very similar. Um, and that's not, that's not by accident. You'll notice every single year, it's a slight improvement upon the year before, where we learned some lessons um, with that system we had. So come to 2020, our elevator, our elevator on our on our climber had close to three years of knowledge and experience built on it. Um, so yeah, uh, totally. Oh yeah, I guess the, the other thing is um, another I guess disclaimer, which is um, yeah, design processes are very specific to teams. Um, I promise you 1325's process will not work probably with any team that's not 1325. Um, the design process is very heavily catered to the students on our team, to the mentors on our team, to our sponsors, to the resources we have. Um, you know, looking at other people's design processes, you can always pick up some good information um, to help shape yours. But when it comes to, to, to creating a design process, I don't think any other team's design process would work for you. Um, the number one way is to kind of ask yourself, um, what are our resources and how can we take these resources and become successful? Um, so if that means using one-to-one -one drawings or no longer using CAD, that's totally fine. Do what works for you. Yeah, and just to add on to kind of the three years of knowledge built into that 2020 Climber Elevator, um, I actually talked to the design lead in 2018-2019 who designed those elevators. And before I designed the 2021, I really talked with them and um, understood how they were made and what went wrong with them. So like 
what went wrong, what went wrong in 2018 and how they fixed them in 2019 and then what they noticed was wrong in 2019 and how and then we kind of brainstormed together on ways to make sure that those issues get solved for 2020. So one thing that we did is um, that the elevators built in 2019 and 2018 were made to constantly go up and down during an entire match. But the 2020 climber elevator, that was just going to be a once, once a match type of thing. So instead of using ball bearings, uh, we use plastic sliding blocks um, for the elevator. So it's just stuff like that that you can use, you can kind of get from previous knowledge and apply it to your current designs to make it a lot better. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's also a really good example of reliability versus performance, right? Um, when it comes to, because we're trying to hit, hit that weight limit, right? So um, yeah, really good example there. Um, yeah, I think we're getting close to the end. One thing I wanted to quickly mention was um, back in 2018, I wrote some essentially blog posts um, about 1325's iterative um, design process. So after every single competition, in a kind of friendly way, I wrote about how the competition went and then what we wanted to change to the robot. And it's actually really cool because you could actually see the robot evolve over time. Um, you could see what I was thinking back in the first week and then kind of where we ended up at the end of the season. Um, so I'll make sure that that ends up somewhere in one of 1325's, um, probably our Instagram bio or something like that, or maybe our website. Um, so if you're interested in reading it, it's about 15, 20 pages long. Um, if you really want to get a really, really in-depth look at how 1325 evolved a machine over time. Yeah, but also keep in mind that was in 2018. So our process in 2020 would be uh, hopefully like a lot better than it was in 2018 because it evolved over time. Yeah. Why do you think I'm releasing it now to the public? We don't want them to get our secrets. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to release your secrets. Yeah. Um, all right. I think that's going to be it for 1325's design podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks so much, Anwil and Bilal, for taking the time to teach us more about the work that goes in behind building competition robots each season. If any of you have any questions for Anwil or Bilal, don't hesitate to reach out through the contact options listed in the description of this podcast. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this episode, and thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Mm -hmm.